0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I can't find the powder for my forehead, so I think I'm going to look quite clammy um, by the end of this show. It is quite warm in the studio. Um, Dahlia, Gabriel, you'll be joining me throughout the evening. How are you holding up? Cool enough where you are?
2: Listen, I mean, it's hot in here, but I won't be taking off all my clothes because that would be a workplace violation. But the minute this is over, I'm jumping straight into a cold bath.
1: I felt like that was kind of like a a backhanded warning in a way. I'm also not going to take my clothes off, don't worry. Um, Make sure you let us know what you think about uh, tonight's stories. You can tweet on the hashtag Navara Live. What are we talking about? I hear you ask. I hear you cry. Well, um, the Tories are trying to force mentally ill people to work from home. So sort of this is, basically the War on the Disabled 2.0, where streeting is picked up on Labour's refusal to commit to anything concrete, in part on the issue of concrete. And one year on from the Liz Trust disaster, former Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng sat down for an awkward interview with Piers Morgan. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story then. The first Prime Minister's questions after the long summer recess took place today. And topping the agenda was the ongoing schools crisis, with 156 schools found to be at risk of collapse, or part of them at risk of collapse because of dodgy concrete. This was Keir Starmer's challenge to Sunak.
3: This crisis is the inevitable result of 13 years of cutting corners, botched jobs, sticking plaster politics. It's the sort of thing you expect from cowboy builders saying that everyone else is wrong, everyone else is to blame, protesting they've done an effing good job, even as the ceiling falls in. The difference, Mr Speaker, is that in this case, the cowboys are running the country. Isn't he ashamed that after 13 years of Tory government, children are cowering under steel supports, stopping their classroom roof? Fall again,
4: Mr. Speaker, this is exactly the kind of political opportunism that we've come exactly the kind of opportunism that we've come to expect from Captain Hindsight over here. Before today, he never once raised this issue with me in Parliament. It wasn't even worthy of a single mention in his so-called landmark speech on education this summer. And if we'd listened to him, our kids would have been off school and locked down for longer. It's as simple as that.
1: Now, that reference to lockdown was a little desperate, I think. It's 2023. Um, Lockdown was a while ago, and Starmer wasn't even opposed to opening schools back then anyway, so I'm not really sure what Sunak is talking about. Um, The claim about Starmer not having mentioned this seems to just be outright wrong, though. In his speech about education, Keir Starmer said this.
3: For his Tory party to turn around afterwards and repay their sacrifice with nothing, to sit there twiddling their thumbs as teachers leave in their droves. School buildings start to crumble and absenteeism goes through the roof. That's shameful.
1: So you heard it there, talking about school buildings beginning to crumble. Um, Sort of questioned about that, Sunak spokesperson today said, um, the Prime Minister was referring to Starmer not having mentioned the particular issue of rack concrete. Um, So he's saying, yeah, he might've mentioned crumbling schools, but he didn't mention rack concrete. now given that no one had really heard of rat concrete today, or at least no one in the public had heard of rat concrete until this week. It would have been a rather bizarre technical point to have included in a political speech. I'm not really sure um, that adds up. When it comes to clutching at straws, though, this was my favorite part of Sunak's desperate defense.
4: Funding for school maintenance and rebuilding will average £2.6 billion a year over this parliament as a result of that spending review, which represents a 20% increase on the years before. Indeed, indeed, Mr Speaker, far from cutting budgets, as he alleges, the amount spent last year was the highest
1: in a decade. The amount spent was the highest in a decade. Now, that might be very, very impressive. That could be a great brag if you were in a party that hadn't been in power for 13 years, right? So it's record-breaking. It hasn't been this high in 10 years. What about if we go a little further back? Um, because, indeed, if we go a little bit further back, it doesn't look particularly good. We showed you this graph on Monday, but it's worth showing you it again. It's from the House of Commons Library and shows capital spending on schools by year. Um, now, it is set to rise to £7 billion, which is the highest it's been in over a decade, but it's still well below the £10 billion spent in the last year of the Labour government. Of course, it wasn't just schools that had their budgets slashed by the coalition's act of wanton vandalism. This chart from the FT shows the percentage of GDP spent on fixed public sector investment in the UK and 11 peer countries. They include Canada, France, Germany, the US and others. Um, When New Labour came into power, the UK invested less than 2% of GDP on public sector investment, way lower than our peers. Under Labour, though, that rose to over 3%, which was still below the average, but Higher than it had been. It then tumbled again under the Conservatives. Among the sectors hit hard by cuts to capital budgets was health, and the results weren't good. Um, This is from a Financial Times article on crumbly concrete in Britain's hospitals. The government announced in May that it was adding five rack-affected sites to its hospital building program, promising they would be rebuilt by 2030. Two other hospitals containing the materials were already part of the program. One of those added to the roster in May, Hitchingbrook Hospital in Cambridgeshire confirmed that since 2020, it had had to confine treatment of some heavier people to the ground floor owing to concerns about the state of the building. And the NHS Trust for that hospital told the Financial Times this, Conditions for managing patients over 19 stones continues to remain in place at Hitchingbrook Hospital. This is due to the cumulative weight of patients, staff and equipment being more of a risk in some of our first floor clinical areas. In a way, I don't really understand this, right? Because, you you know, they can't have someone over 19 stone on the first floor in case that causes the, uh, the floor to cave in. But of course, if you've got someone who's ten stone and they have a visitor who's ten stone, you, you know, you don't want it to be the case that's only if there's a medical emergency, you need an extra doctor in there and the whole thing collapses. I mean, it doesn't sound like a particularly healthy situation for one to be in. Dahlia, what did you make of Rishi Sunak's defences in, in Parliament today? We had record-breaking funding, so long as you don't look further back than when we entered into power. Um, and then some nonsense about Keir Starmer never having mentioned this, when in fact he kind of had mentioned it.
2: Right, I mean, it's patently absurd and I mean if you have a hospital that can't cope with a patient that's 19 stone that's not the fault of the patient that's 19 stone it's the fault of the hospital like you should it's the 21st century we should have hospitals that can maintain integrity uh, no matter what weight their patients are so that was just that's just some nonsense distraction and I'm sure was briefed by the government um, as a way of Trying to find a group of people to blame for something that is so clearly a structural issue. Um, but I do actually think that this story really does get at the heart of the fact that essential infrastructure in this country has been so chronically underfunded. And of course, there are things that you can specifically point um, and you know pin it on the last. Ten years of a conservative government and particularly uh, Rishi Sunak, who slashed, took a sledgehammer to what was already very measly provisions for schools, for education, specifically for the built environment of schools. And of course, a lot of blame does go to the feet of Rishi Sunak. But this is also a very chronic problem that has existed in Britain for a really long time. We talk about Tory austerity, and yes, Tory austerity is a problem. But this is also this kind of nickel and diming and cheaping out on infrastructure that is as essential as literally the building that your children go to school in has been going on for decades now. Uh, you know, And I think this concrete story really demonstrates that, because let's not forget we have known that rack concrete uh, is not, first of all, that it has a 30-year shelf life and that it it is very prone to wear and tear and that it's essentially not an appropriate material to build something that you expect to be there for decades and decades, you know, like a school or a hospital. We've known about that since the 60s, but it wasn't until the 90s that building with rack actually got outlawed. And why is that? It's because it's a cheap material. And so for me, this really goes to the fact that in British capitalism, which is so ironic because Britain looted the whole world and yet they come to their own working classes and say, we don't have money to invest in, you know, your essential infrastructure and your essential services. Like how can you, you know, like steal from the entire world and yet turn around and say that you're broke? But Anyway, it does speak to this broader problem um, in British capitalism and in the way that infrastructure has been funded. And it is kind of specific to Britain because we always do, we always have been spending less on things like education per pupil than the rest of Europe. Uh, and obviously, as is always the case, when you chronically underfund a system like that, the cost ends up being so much greater. And whether that cost is in You know, money, the money to clear up after a crisis, as we're seeing now, or in the case of things like Grenfell, the cost is in actual human lives. And so it's a deeply irrational system. And yet the reason it persists so much is because the people who are responsible for it, you know, the people who... are CEOs of the companies that make flammable cladding, that make rack and sell it to governments under these big promises. The people in the Treasury who commission these budgets uh, and, you know, consistently have, you know, regardless of government, have tied governments to this particular logic that things like hospitals and schools should be built as cheaply as possible, even if it's not safe. And of course, the people who are the politicians, they aren't the ones who are going to the hospitals and going to the schools that are built using these flawed materials. It's your kids. It's our kids. It's people like you. It's people like me who end up having to be in these buildings that are literally falling on people's heads. And so to me, I think obviously it's very important to look at the particular liability that this government has for slashing funding into things like school buildings. But actually, this has been a pretty consistent feature of capitalism of the economy in this country over the past six or seven decades.
1: Yeah, I suppose in that graph we showed it, it did never get up to the average of the peer countries. And I suppose sort of using peer countries, you can say that sort of the financial times have handpicked these somewhat, but I suppose they are countries that people would generally compare ourselves to, European countries and and North America. So it does seem that under New Labour, even though they, they did massively increase capital spending compared to the Tories, um, yeah, it, it still wasn't particularly high, right? So that was the golden age, um, looking at the last 40 years of, of of British social policy when it comes to funding schools. And even then, um, we weren't funding them particularly well. Maybe we need to tax the rich a little bit more. I think that's probably the answer there. Um, a stat I found today, which I found quite phenomenal, more than a third, 38% of school buildings are past their estimated design lifespan now that's according to the national audit office obviously an, an official um body um not sort of a campaigning group um now that's pretty phenomenal now that's because you know when a, when a building gets designed they're not designed to to live forever to survive forever right you have an architect say design this school this school probably should only really be around for about 30 40 years and then it should be replaced you're not building it out of something that you think is going to last a really really long time otherwise you would design it differently. They decide that given that we're going to have changing needs, we don't need to, you know, create something, you know, like, like like a cathedral that's going to be there for hundreds of years. You give it a lifespan. Now, so many of our schools are past that lifespan. And I think that is in large part because of the the Tories canceling, um, the rebuilding programs in 2010. Let's go to Labour, um, because the wheels are clearly falling off of Tory Britain. But the problem for Labour is that it's unclear if they're offering any real alternative. BBC Breakfast put that challenge to Keir Starmer this morning. The Institute for Fiscal Studies has,
4: has looked at your plans and they're saying that really, in terms of uh, what you've said, you're not going to put up income tax. You're talking about being very responsible and, and disciplined uh, with spending. And they're saying that that means effectively that, that spending's Going to be frozen. So people here who are worried about schools or yep. sewers or the roads will, will potentially look at Labour and say, okay, you, you talk up all these things, but but things aren't really going to be very different under a Labour government because you can't afford w- let, to let, let
3: them. Yeah. Let, let me rise to that and give you a clear example. What I set out um, in a speech I gave a few months ago was what we would do in relation to schools, because in many schools we don't have teachers in the subject matters that really matter. In maths, for example, we don't have the maths teachers in place. So what we've said is that we would remove the tax break for private schools and use that money, release that money, if you like, to our state schools to recruit 8,000 or so new teachers in those subjects where, at the moment, we don't have maths teachers teaching maths who are qualified in the way that they should be. So we're not saying we're not going to spend any money. What we are saying is every time we make a commitment, in this case, to make sure we've got the right teachers in the right place, in the right subjects, we will say, where the money is coming from. In this case, um, as I say, getting rid of that tax break for private schools and using it for our state schools—that's the okay. approach we've taken. It's not to say um, we don't think um, any money should be made, uh, made available. It's to say where we are making commitments, we are also going to have a column on the page that says where's the money coming from and how much is it going to cost. And that's the way that we'll approach all of our commitments as we go into the election.
1: That was Keir Starmer, a school affected by the RAC crisis. Obviously, not the whole school being shut down because you could hear the kids in the background, but parts of it um, had struggled. Um, Now, on the face of it, that sounds reasonable enough, doesn't it? Labour will offer to spend more on the public realm, but it will only do so once it's specified how they'll pay for it. So what taxes will pay for it, just as they have done when it comes to to maths teachers and this tax on private schools, or at least removing the tax break on private schools. There is a problem, though, with that, because it might sound reasonable until you realise that Rachel Reeves has already ruled out higher levies on property, capital gains, and top earners. Starmer himself has ruled out raising the basic rate of income tax. So where will the money come from to invest in public services? Right, He's saying we're going to improve them, we're going to make sure they're paid for, fine, but also we're going to rule out any tax rises. How does that work? Well, that's where Starmer resorts to magical thinking. What do you say to our viewers watching this morning
4: who think they want more spending, they want the public services boosted, they want things fixed, and they're not convinced that you're prepared to, to give that money to public services, that you're so determined to prove that you're responsible and prudent that you're not prepared to invest. Well, let me
3: say this. What you will get with an incoming Labour government is a mission-driven government. That means a clear sense of what we're going to achieve over five years. None of this short-term sticking plaster, not fixing the fundamentals. But how do you I'm fix it without to spending fix money? The fundamentals. What you do is you you do spend money, but you have to say where it's going to come from. But you do more than spending money. You also reform. If you look at our public services, I ran a public service. Um, for five years in criminal justice, I know that, of course, money improves your public services. And that's why all Labour governments have put more money into our public services, but also reform and change is necessary to modernize and bring forward our public services. But what you'll get is a completely different mindset. No more shortcuts, sticking plasters, a serious long-term plan to fix the fundamentals. That's what I came into politics for, and that's what we will deliver if we're privileged enough to serve. And I know that we've got to earn every vote.
1: Now, I found that answer really, really frustrating. Now, on the reform issue, right? The problem there is it's indistinguishable from what Cameron and Osborne said in 2010, really, right? They never promised, oh, we're going to reduce public services. We're going to make schools and hospitals worse. What they said is we're going to squeeze the funding, yes, but reform will mean that the the service you know, remains the same or, or even gets better, right? That was the argument behind austerity. No one promises that they're going to make services worse, but what the center-right do, or, I mean, the extremist-right when it came to austerity, right? What they do is they say, well, we'll, we'll reform the service, and we, we might have to make cuts here or there, but that'll improve efficiency, that'll improve productivity, and the, uh, out at the end of it all, you will have a better service than you had before. I don't see what's distinguishing Keir Starmer from the Tories there. And it's further to the right than New Labour, right? Because what New Labour did was you know, they increased funding for public services and said, this increased funding will come alongside reform. So when it came to schools, they, we will massively increase funding to schools, but we're also going to subject you to league tables and competition. And, and so it was almost as if the, the increased funding came in exchange for, for reforms. Keir Starmer seems to just think that reforms are magically going to make everything better, which to me just seems that you know, magical thinking. The other thing I found very frustrating there is him saying what we're going to do is the end of sticking, of sticking plaster politics, right? This, this idea that you sort of, you make every decision based on tactics, based on what's going to be the easiest to do in the next six months instead of what's going to be the most important thing to do over the next 10 years. Now, I would say that the one thing that really has defined Keir Starmer's leadership at the Labour Party is, is it's very tactical, right? So he's saying, we're going to rule out taxes, we're going to rule out tax rises. Now, that's clearly not based on an analysis of of the problems facing this country and what's needed to solve them, that's based on a tactical decision that if he wants to appeal to the owners of powerful newspapers and powerful media companies and appeal to a subset of swing voters, then he has to do things such as rule out increasing taxes. Now, that's going to create a real problem when Labour get into government because if they want to improve public services as they say they will, um, where's the money going to come from? They say, "We're, we're, we're going to balance the books and we're not going to increase taxes So what are they going to do? Well, it seems to me they're just saying, well, it doesn't matter, we'll sort that out. We'll we'll sort that out when we we get there. Once we get into power, we'll work all of this out. Now, that is sticking plaster politics, right? That's just saying we are going to look at the next six months and then hope for the best after that. Dahlia, what did you make of Keir Starmer's interventions at that North London school this morning?
2: I think you're completely right, Michael. What really dawned on me watching that clip was we talk about Keir Starmer being a Blairite, right? I actually think to call Keir Starmer's Labour Blairite is actually to give them a lot of undeserved credit. And I say that as no fan of Blairism. I think Blairism laid the foundations for austerity, laid the foundations for a lot of the crises we see today. And that's not even getting to the disastrous foreign policy that has cost so many precious lives around the world. But when you look at the starting point of... Blair in 1997, before he got into power, he was far to the left of Keir Starmer at his starting point. And when you take into account the fact that normally when a party gets into power, they go to the right, it means that I actually think to think that we're going to get Blairism, at least domestically, is actually being too optimistic which is saying a lot. And what I really see there, and I think you're totally right to say that to describe that we shouldn't describe uh, Starmer's Labour as Blairite, we should describe it as Cameron Osborne-style politics. That is absolutely uh, correct. And the way that we see it is in the fact that he is articulating, despite it being a well-proven economic fallacy, public purse politics, which is this idea that the national economy functions the same way as an individual household budget which we know is complete nonsense particularly I can't think of any more any scenario that is more nonsensical for show it for public purse politics than education education is about investing in the future of our country It's the exact kind of situation, it's the exact kind of example to demonstrate that borrowing money, that investing money and not penny pinching is actually what is necessary for a healthy economy and for an economy that socially and financially makes great returns. And so this internalization of the terms of debate that Cameron and Osborne set and to actually say, I'm going to out Cameron and Osborne, Cameron and Osborne. Really shows how far away, even from Blairism, we've come.
1: I suppose Kirstan will say, "Well, Tony Blair also said he wasn't going to raise taxes and and was going to keep to Tory spending plans to some degree." I mean, the difference there was that we had very high growth, so it was relatively easy to at least pump some money towards public services while not increasing taxes. At the moment, we don't, Um, and of course, you know, Blair and Brown ultimately did raise. They they should have raised taxes a lot more than they did, but they did raise them somewhat. I suppose what I find very bizarre watching sort of Keir Starmer and Labour and all of these things is that they do seem to have a critique of austerity, right? They're saying, what you did was made this very short-term decision whereby you cut funding for capital improvements, and what that has done is increased costs in the long term. So, good good analysis, fine. And so, what are you going to do? Well, we're uh, going to sort of constrain ourselves, restrain ourselves with the exact same bizarre rules, not bizarre, but, you know, wrong faulty rules that the Conservatives did back in the 2010s and say, the thing that we cannot possibly compromise on is fiscal conservatism. We can compromise on everything else. Now, what's that going to do? In the long term, it will increase costs. You know, I hope Labour are going to go back on all of this and they'll get into power and they'll borrow a lot more than they said they'd borrow and they'll tax more than they said they'll tax and that they can invest in these things. So maybe, you know, the best case scenario is that they're not being honest with us. Um, which I suppose is what the Labour right fought during the leadership election. So could be the case. Um, probably we shouldn't hold up too much hope. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Let's go on to our next story. We are going to come back to Labour in a moment um, in the form of an answer from Wes Streeting. Um, he's sort of being challenged on Channel 4 News about if whether or not Labour are any different to the Tories. For now, though, the Tories are planning to change the benefits system, making it harder for some people with disabilities to get benefits unless they're also looking for work. This was how Work and Pension Secretary Mal Stride announced the changes in the Commons.
5: There remain over 2.5 million people who are inactive because of long-term sickness and disability. Yet we know that one in five people on incapacity benefits who are currently not expected to prepare for work want to work in the future if the right job and support were available. And the proportion of people going through a work capability assessment who have been given the highest level of award and deemed to have no work-related requirements at all has risen from 21% in 2011 to 65% last year. Madam Deputy Speaker, this situation is excluding significant numbers of people from receiving employment support to help them move closer to work opportunities. It is holding back the labour market and the economy, but perhaps most important of all, it is holding back human potential. And I want to ensure that everybody who can benefits from all the opportunities that work brings, not just the financial security, but all the physical and mental health benefits too.
1: So Stride wants to push through changes to the work capability assessment. Now that's the test um, that determines the level of benefits someone with a long-term illness or disability May receive. The FT reports this. The government argues that a post coronavirus pandemic embrace of remote working and other forms of workplace flexibility means that many people who would previously have been able to hold down a job could now work from home or for an employer who accommodated their needs. Under the proposals published for consultation, people who struggled with mobili- mobility, social engagement, or bowel and bladder control could in future be expected to look for work. Stride also wants to make it harder for those at risk of suicide or physical harm to claim incapacity benefits. Now, the so-called safety net rules exempt people from work search requirements if there is, quote, substantial risk to mental or physical health. Now, Stride wants to get rid of that. Now, of course, he's not saying this is to punish um, people who are suffering from mental health problems or punish the disabled. He's saying, and um, this is doing them a favor. This will, will help them, potentially even help them improve their mental health, if it gets them back into work. He says they'll be better served by returning to work. But of course, we have heard this all before. Between 2011 and 2015, the Cameron government oversaw large-scale cuts to the welfare payments for the sick and disabled. Here's how Cameron described people on benefits in 2012.
5: They came to the House of Commons and said they were going to back a welfare cap, but when it came to the crunch, they opposed a welfare cap. And he's absolutely right. It shows who is on the side of those who work hard, who want to do the best for their families and for their country and for their community, and who thinks that actually you should be better off on benefits. We back the workers, they back the shirkers. I
1: mean, it hasn't changed, right? The implication there, by sort of saying, we're going to take away these things that means, you know, if, if, if you're in a situation where you're feeling, feeling suicidal, Going through the pretty hellish process, which is trying to prove to someone at the job center that you're adequately keen when you're looking for a job is going to be pretty goddamn difficult, right? And saying it's in their best interest to make them look for a job, I don't believe any of it, right? It's it, it's just a sort of more civilized way, one could say, of, uh, of making the same claim that ultimately these people are shirkers, which was the whole ideology of Cameron Osborne. Caused a hell of a lot of pain Um, Of course, part of those cuts involved moving people from the Disability Living Allowance to personal independence payments. You might have heard of them referred to as PIP. Now, that involved mass reassessment of people with long-term conditions, with many missing out or receiving reduced payments. Now, an ITV report from last year showed how the effects of that policy are still being felt.
0: Carol has eight conditions that leave her in continuous pain. Every bit of standing, walking, bending hurts. The brown envelope was meant to bring financial support, but instead her claim for the disability benefit personal independence payment, known as PIP, was turned down. Bella, come here. She does qualify for this assistance dog, Bella, who can help empty the washing machine. Phone, find it. Where's the phone? And fetch her phone. But when it came to that PIP assessment... It's an absolutely traumatising experience. It feels as if you're there to be accused of lying almost. And any little thing that you can achieve seems to be held against you. The fact that I'm wearing a nice dress, that counts against me. And often you meet an assessor who knows nothing about your medical conditions. There were clear parallels for Arabella, who had to be supported financially by her daughter, then 16, when autism, PTSD and suicidal thoughts left her unable to work. But when she tried to qualify for PIP... That assessment must have been one of the most traumatic events of my life. We were welcomed by someone who posed as a receptionist, who then watched us in the waiting room for 20 minutes and then introduced herself as actually. She was the assessor and she'd been assessing us.
1: Now that is like an undercover assessor, essentially. So you've got someone with severe mental health difficulties, someone who's having a hard time enough already, you know, potentially having a hard time trusting people. I imagine sort of a combination of, of, of mental health difficulties which were described there means that probably you, you might have a complicated relationship to those around you. Are people working against you, right? That might be your concern. Now, you'll get, you're sent into this situation where someone pretends to be a receptionist and then after 20 minutes outs themselves as the person assessing you and, you know, basically trying to catch you out as a liar, essentially, right? That's the job of these people. I mean, I'm sure there are some good people in these jobs, but the way it is structured is that the people doing these assessments are incentivized to try and get people off the benefit roll, right? So the the whole nature of the job is, oh, no, we think you probably can walk far enough to get this job. Or now it's, we think that even though you're having severe mental health difficulties, you could just work from home. I'm sure that will be fine. Just do a sort of call centre job from your bedroom. That'll cheer you up. That seems to be the message here. It does seem like we've learned pretty much nothing at all here, doesn't it?
2: Well, when you look at the context that we're already starting from, the condition of getting access to support for people with disabilities, it's already unimaginably bad Seventeen thousand people, actually, since 2013, have died waiting to hear the outcome of their disability benefit application. And as outlined in that clip, often the process of applying for disability benefits it's invasive, it's traumatic. People are treated as if they're on trial for having a chronic illness. Uh, And so, really, it's 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 um. I couldn't imagine how much further it could go and yet obviously this government always finds a way but it's very important to make it very clear that the idea that this is in any way some kind of altruistic approach you know or or approach to to help people with disabilities because it will be better for their mental health to go to work that is completely rubbish. Obviously, the government can't come out and say what is really behind this policy, which is that they have nothing but contempt for people with disabilities, that they view any form of you know, interdependency or vulnerability with scorn. They can't say that. So they have to come out with this narrative that somehow this is about putting people's people with disabilities, putting their interests at heart and obviously this all stems from a fundamental problem which is that people don't believe people with disabilities whether it's in the office to try and you know apply for disability benefits or whether it's at the very high level of our government whether it's believing disabled people when they talk about their symptoms and what they can and can't do or whether it's about listening to disabled people when they talk about what they think they need because ultimately i should decide what is good for my mental health, in collaboration with someone who is familiar with whatever it is I'm dealing with. I am the one who is best able to decide what is good for me, not this government that is using this as a very thin cover to essentially try and take what is or what the, the few scraps that are remaining from our welfare state for disabled people away from them. And ultimately, it's just incredible to see that given all of the flaws that we know exist in our disability benefit system you know the trauma of the process how invasive it is the amount of time and money that is poured into means testing um, that could just be going directly to the things that people who uh, that disabled people actually need any civilized country would be going in a different direction, in a completely opposite direction. They would be working to make the process more accessible, not more difficult, because let's not forget, the government is actually taking pride in the fact that it is difficult to get disability benefits. And yet we are going in the exact opposite direction that any civilized country would be going in. And I think that's because this government is almost going out of its way to demonstrate to us, and I think this is particul- This slash-and-burn approach to our welfare state is particularly a problem because the Tories essentially know that they are probably not going to win the next election, so they don't care how unpopular it, how unpopular these policies might be, how inhumane, how cruel these policies may be. They are slashing and burning our welfare state to make sure that as little is, is left of it as possible by the time the Labour Party get into power, because they know the Labour Party probably won't rebuild it.
0: Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that! You fund us, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you.
1: Let's go on to our next story. The Tories may have wrecked Britain, but it's unclear whether Labour are offering a proper alternative to our current woes. That was the challenge put to West Streeting by Christian and Guru Murphy. See what you think of Streeting's answers.
6: Even with our pretty low expectations of the Conservative Party, I don't think anyone would have expected them to be quite this chaotic, quite this reckless with the public finances, and to leave such a state, whether it's the worst crisis in the history of the NHS or classrooms literally falling in.
4: So it's just competence, isn't it? That's what you're offering. It's you're not really offering a philosophy it's that's any different.
6: values. Of course, it's about values. And look at the sorts of choices that a Labour government would, would make to invest in the, in the education of the majority of children in this country, better teaching. We will tax private schools. Fairly. So would you in, rebuild the schools? In, or, well, of I course, mean, you know, would course, you bring these, back
3: building schools for the future? Well, of course, and,
6: with these schools that have the, uh, the, 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 the rack concrete problem, of course we're going to have to pick up the pieces not, not just and pick, up, I mean, you, pick th- th- up the bill. Th- there
3: was a program of rebuilding schools. And the, the government had to to park it and, and, and cancel it.
7: Well, they, didn't have, to. It well, they didn't have well, to. It's, a, it's a really
6: to. good yeah. example, though, isn't it, of the difference between Labour values and Conservative values. Scrapping a school building programme that leaves us with a bigger problem and a bigger bill at the end of 13 years of Conservative government. Contrast that with the last Labour government, mm. where capital investment in schools was at record levels, and we were, we, we were working through, build, rebuilding literally every school in this country. So don't tell me there isn't a don't difference any between pledges. Labour and the Conservatives. Well, the,
3: the point is, you say all of that. But then when we say, well, yeah, OK, so are you going to bring back new schools, a new schools programme, you're unable to promise it because Rachel Reeves will tell you to
6: right, but shut hang, on, up. But hang on a second. This, um, is, but this is a good example where, for example, so on schools, it's a really good example. We don't even know what the scale of the problem or the size of the bill will be just for the RAC schools. And we're going into into the the election. We're going into the election with a fully-costed, fully-funded manifesto. We're working through, Bridget Phillipson has been doggedly trying to get the the figures and the, crucially, the size of the bill out of the government. So then she can make wider choices about the education capital
1: Lots of points that we've heard from Labour frontbenchers for a while now. I think one thing that really frustrated me here, and it's something which we have heard from from many Labour frontbenchers recently, is this idea that they can't commit to anything. You know, they can't commit to a school re- rebuilding program because they don't yet know the cost, and until they know the cost, it would be irresponsible to promise anything. Now, again, that could be a reasonable thing to say if you were consistent, right? So it would also be consistent if, when Labour asked will you increase taxes on the rich? They say, well, we don't know quite how, how much fixing we need to do of, of Britain's schools. We don't know how many hospitals need to be rebuilt. It would be incredibly irresponsible of us to rule out tax rises on the wealthy, precisely the people who could afford to fix these things. But Labour have not done that, right? Labour are saying, oh, well, we, don't, we haven't yet done the sums to work out whether we can pay to improve anyone's lives, but we have done enough sums that we can rule out increasing taxes on the, on the wealthy. And to me, that seems odd. You know, it seems like they're trying to paint this as a technocratic answer. We will work this out once all the information is in front of us and we can do these sums. Why does that apply only to spending on public services, but not apply to, you know, the other side of the equation, which is taxes to pay? for public services. Why do we never hear a Labour politician say, well, it would be deeply irresponsible for us to say we couldn't possibly increase taxes on the wealthy, or we couldn't possibly introduce a wealth tax, because we don't know quite how bad an economy we're going to inherit. But they never say that. they're, They're perfectly happy to say, we don't really know what we're doing, but we're very willing to rule out wealth taxes, but they are not willing to rule out letting our schools continue to crumble. I suppose I should say, West Streeting has said that the whole concrete issue—they will have to, to 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 fix that because the immediate safety um, of schools is is something which cannot be compromised upon. But again, that's really falling into precisely the argument which, or precisely the sort of way of thinking which West Streeting was arguing against. There, he says, you know, this short-term idea. What do governments always do when they cut funding? Right, they don't cut current spending necessarily, because people will notice that immediately. The first thing they will always cut is capital spending, because they think, well, that's going to be someone else's problem. And it seems to me that West Streeting is essentially saying a similar thing here, which is, oh, of course, we'll have to pay for the immediate problems, but we can't promise to invest in the future.
2: Labour is not even claiming to sell, you know, this idea that we will fundamentally improve your life. You know, it's their, their sell is not that we will invest in the things that really matter to you, you know, healthcare, education, housing, that's not their sell. Their sell is essentially that we will put the managed back into managed decline. And that's what I always get from seeing the Labour front bench speaking, is this sense that there is an inevitable acceptance uh, that Britain doesn't have a welfare state anymore, it won't have a functioning welfare state, uh, that the state is only going to exist in order to create the conditions for the super wealthy to get returns on their investments, whether it's, you know, through our housing system or through whatever private contractors are going to pick up the scraps and are already picking up the scraps of our NHS, that that the role of government is to grease the wheels for that and to be punitive. So to, you know... Invest in police, to invest in war, to invest in any part of the state that is about punishing people. That's the kind of reality that we exist in. And it feels like Labour has just conceded that completely. One thing that struck me there was Christian Guru Murti, who, you know, did put really good questions to West Streeting there. He sort of said, Oh, but you know, Labour is saying that the conservatives are a problem and they're they're pointing out all these problems, but they're not making any pledges on what they're gonna do. And it just struck me there that Even if Labour were making pledges, the problem is that even those pledges are not worth the paper they're written on. And so really, where do we go from here when it's like, if you say you're going to do something, we don't have a reason to believe you. But so then the other alternative is that you just don't promise anything at all. And of course, What I'm seeing in the way that the Labour government is conceiving of itself, even though the role of a supposedly center-left party in a capitalist economy should always be to try and expand the imagination of workers in a particular country in terms of what they are entitled to, what they feel entitled to, given that they create much of the wealth in the country. And yet Labour see it as their brief to do the exact opposite, to shrink and discipline the public's imagination in terms of what they can actually commit to doing. And so really West Streeting divulged that, as you outlined there, Michael, the fundamental problems are going to remain the same. It's going to remain business as usual. That while they might be willing to throw a little bit of money to immediate crises if they are on the front pages, they aren't going to do what we know this country needs, particularly as we enter an era of, you know climate breakdown, which we are seeing is impacting Britain a lot harder and faster than we thought it was gonna be. We should be investing in making resilient systems that may not be immediate vote winners, or they may not be immediately legible to the electorate, but the generations in the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years are going to be thankful um, to us because as further crises, whether it's economic or climate related, and most likely an intersection of the two, We want to have resilient systems that can cope with that. And Labour hasn't gotten the memo that not only is that really important, but they could sell it as something that would actually win votes. It could absolutely be a vote winner if Labour was just willing to do it. But unfortunately, it seems that they are wanting to look, quote unquote, responsible Not to the people that actually have to use the healthcare systems and education systems and housing systems in this country. They want to appear responsible to the people and the companies that want to make money off those systems. And that's the fundamental problem. It's a complete divergence of interests.
1: Let's go to our final story. It's been quite a heavy show today. And the final story is um, a little bit lighter. It's a year since Liz Truss began her utterly disastrous premiership. And to mark that moment, her closest ally and former Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, has given a rather bizarre interview to Piers Morgan.
8: You've never said sorry for I've never what, said what happened a year what just over a year ago. What I've
7: said, I bear responsibility for it. Why not say and, sorry? And, and what I want to do is to make sure that we actually get back uh, to a growth agenda. What do you bear yeah, responsibility for? Well, I think the way that we delivered it and the, and the speed with which it was delivered mm. was wrong. And I put, my, I put up my hand uh, frequently and said, we should have taken more time we should have had a more balanced uh, approach. Uh, and
8: I've said that repeatedly
7: in interviews, uh, on yeah, television. You well, I'm,
8: re- I'm really curious why you've never been able to bring yourself to say the simple words, I'm sorry. After all the damage that was inflicted by that ruinous 44-day regime of Liz Truss, and I'm sure that you would say, and we'll come to this, a lot of it was on her. No, but I'm, not, you, I'm not here to apportion blame. I mean, that's, the, that's one of the reasons why. But if you take why, responsibility for that's causing- That's one of the reasons why. I, I get it. But if, you take, so if, you, if you take responsibility, why are you so, also not prepared to say
7: sorry? So I think there's a, it sounds like a loyally distinction, but I think there's a difference between saying, I was responsible.
8: Sounds like a bit like a cowardly and then distinction. No, saying... because
7: actually, a lot of the debate, and you've probably been following this, mm. if you look at things like slavery and reparations and all of that, all of that is all about saying, I'm sorry. And in, in those instances, the people themselves weren't entirely responsible. For I agree. That happened yeah, but, but two or three
8: hundred years ago. I agree with you. So, so what, in terms I, of I don't see why people today should be apologizing for the behavior no, I get that. of ancestors 300 years ago. So
6: but so, you,
1: you were no, we, you were the guy. <laughs> what a bizarre rhetorical move, right? So he was the chancellor when they crashed the economy, right? So obviously we we know what they did. They said we're going to give the rich all of these tax cuts um and not only are we not going to sort of you know, balance the books and say, we funded this tax cut. Because I don't think you always do need to sort of balance the books in in that way that you're sort of an accountant or doing it via whatever the Office of Budget Responsibility's most recent projection is. I do think you can be more flexible than that. The problem they had was they said, we're just going to cut taxes and then hope by magic, the economy grows to pay for it. There was no sort of step-by-step plausible account of how that would work. Now, what did that do? It did crash the economy, increased um, interest rates and people's mortgages. Um, and Kwasi Kwarteng is saying, well, no, this is, this is kind of like the slavery issue because then people want people to say sorry who it's not actually their, their fault. Now, this would work if we were talking about Kwasi Kwarteng like grandchildren. Kwasi Kwarteng's great-great-grandchildren should not have to apologize for Liz Truss's mini-budget. But Kwasi Kwarteng was the chancellor. There is no that there is there is no analogy to the issue of reparations of slavery. Dahlia, why did Kwasi Kwarteng decide to go for the slavery reparations argument as to why he shouldn't apologise for his own budget, which he wrote and announced a year ago?
2: I mean, because he did what every Tory does when they find themselves boxed into a corner, which is to reach for the nearest so-called culture war issue they can find. Crucially, Kwasi Kwarteng is wrong about what reparations is. And that's actually what really pissed me off. Reparations isn't about white guilt. It's not about getting apologies or sorries from individual white people. White guilt is actually useless. It has no meaning. It's uninteresting. It's boring. It's not what we're interested in. Reparations is about understanding that humans and resources were stolen on a systematic scale in a way that has created economic inequalities not only between people but between countries that have not not only still remain today but are only getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that it is therefore justified to redistribute that wealth in order to bring everyone back up back to par and there are and you know this idea of individual white families paying reparations Obviously, that's one model of reparations, but actually the kind that the reparations movements broadly um, are asking for more is actually in terms of being done in a more structural systemic level. So we're talking about, you know, a redistribution of wealth from the global north to the global south. We're talking about climate reparations, you know, moving that money from the global north where it sits illegitimately and was stolen, and investing that into the kinds of resilient systems and, you know, freeing freeing global South countries up to be able to use that, that money in order to build the kind of systems that they need to be resilient in an era of climate breakdown, which, of course, the people who will be impacted by are not the causes of that crisis. And so, even the, the reparations metaphor, as he says it, is completely wrong because it's not about saying sorry. Your sorry is useless. Your sorry isn't going to pay my rent or put food on my table or do any of that nonsense if we're talking about, you know, colonialism in my case, but also chattel slavery. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Quasi Quateng didn't bring up that that specific point in order to make a coherent argument. He brought up that point because he wanted to say a trigger word that was going to pull the talk TV audience or the Piers Morgan watchers to his side, which is, hey, isn't it crazy that black people are asking for reparations? Let's talk about that because I would rather talk about that, um, which I know will get your audience frothing at the mouth, than actually talk about the very recent history that I have in screwing up this country's economy. But I actually have a weirdly unexpected, not defense, but kind of caveat to Kwasi Kwateng's point with, that he shouldn't take um, sole responsibility or solely apologize for what happened under the List Trust government. Because actually that budget was not just a product of Kwasi kwateng and List Trust, it was a product of a whole ecosystem, more concretely fronted by the Institute of Economic Affairs, but a whole range of institutions that have kind of gotten off scot-free for you know, heavily lobbying and pushing someone like a Quasi or a Litz Trust who are gullible enough to take it to create such a crisis in this country. So they really should be getting as much, if not more, smoke um, than Quasi Kwarteng and Litz Trust. And because they're kind of faceless, whilst Quasi Kwarteng is getting asked questions, the IEA is still being taken seriously as an actual legitimate economic think tank.
1: Let's take a look at Quasi Tang expanding um, on why he shouldn't be held responsible.
2: Learned. I was not
7: the sole agent of what happened. Okay? What I can't get my head around. Why are you happened. so? And what I'm trying to say. Why are you so desperate? But, not because because, because what will happen is if I say, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, well, then Gillian's uh, got to say, everyone's got to apologise. Never mind anybody time. else. No, so that's important. And I just think that it's very easy to get politicians who are uh, ultimately responsible for things to try and say, okay, I'm sorry. When this,
8: politicians sorry screw up badly and it impacts on millions of people's lives. I think that it is incumbent so, on so them
7: not only to take responsibility, but to apologise. So, so, so I've taken responsibility. I accept that the implementation... Be not done. sorry. I still think the strategy was the right... Be thing. not sorry for we're, the implementation. And I think we'll, I think we'll come... We'll Be you're come not sorry round for the implementation. To, and, and I think we'll come round to... Do you not find it a bit ridiculous? That no, you're... no, I don't. Because... Look, we're playing a game here. We're not playing I'm, a game. It's not I'm a game saying, to the millions of I'm people. Saying that it's not a game to the people whose
8: lives were affected. I
7: was saying that I was uh, completely responsible. Uh, not completely responsible, but I was involved in those decisions. Mm.
1: <laughs> I was saying that I was completely responsible. No, I wasn't completely responsible. Was, uh, you know, th- th- there's a lot of strange things going on with quasi-quartex arguments in this interview. But I think the idea that unless you are the sole person who is responsible for something, you should not apologize is also quite a strange notion. Right? I'm not going to apologize for anything unless I did it entirely on my own. So if you're sort of part of a gang which robs a bank, you say, well, I'm not going to say sorry because it wasn't just me that robbed the bank. Well, maybe all three of you should say sorry, right? If you're a gang of three and you rob a bank and you say, well, do you want to say, you know, you stand up in court, do you want to apologize for robbing the bank? You caused a lot of trauma to the the staff there, to the to the attendants, you know, to the tellers. Um, and, and then you say, well, I'm not going to apologize. Make the other guy apologize. Make my gang member over there apologize. The judge is not going to look well on that. The judge is going to say, "Well, if you were part of the, if you were part of the robbery conspiracy, you should probably say sorry." You you can't just say, "Well, don't look at me, look at the other guys." Right? Also, this wasn't just—he wasn't just any old member of the gang that crashed the economy. He was the chancellor. Right? It's the—you know—other than the prime minister, it's the most important job when it comes to determining the economic strategy it was him who stood up and delivered the mini budget and now he's saying well I know I read out the mini budget and I know I was responsible for the mini budget but there was some civil servants involved and there was some other ministers involved why do you want me to apologize i'm only in part responsible so i'm definitely not going to say sorry like you are a very small child it seems you know this is this is the kind of this is a a, a moral lesson that i feel like one should have to teach like a 5 year old not a a former chancellor um, in his defence, Kwasi Kwarteng did push back successfully on at least one point. Were you the shortest
7: what? living chancellor in history? Well, actually, Ian McLeod was, but that's a different All right, so you're the second shortest living but, chancellor. But what, oh, hang on, what? hang on.
8: Okay. Shortest living chancellor in history. She was one of the shortest The shortest. Prime, the yeah. shortest prime minister. 44 days of that's right. mayhem, right? She couldn't even outlast a lettuce.
1: Now, Kwasi Kwarteng is absolutely right. Liz Truss was the shortest serving prime minister, but he was only the second shortest serving chancellor. So in a way, he did better than Liz Truss. Um, What he didn't mention is that the reason the other guy's tenure ended after just 30 days is because he died of a sudden heart attack in office. So it's quasi quasi, no, I wasn't the shortest serving chancellor. I was the second shortest serving chancellor. Well, what happened to the other one? He didn't do a disastrous mini budget. He died. a surprise heart attack in 1970. Um, Dahlia, if your only claim to success is that you lasted longer in the position of chancellor than the guy who died of a sudden heart attack, I mean, what does that say about your record?
2: I mean, I guess it's what helps him go to sleep at night. I guess it is a, it's, a, you know, when the, your other person didn't outlast the letters, you know, the fact that you outlasted a human being, you know, probably feels like a pretty good pretty good badge for you. But, you know, I mean, where, where is the politics of personal responsibility, quasi. What about, you know, taking, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and taking responsibility for your actions? Or is that just reserved for, you know, people with disabilities trying to get some benefits uh, so that they can, you know, live a dignified life?
1: Very entertaining. You might have crashed the economy, but he's still giving us fantastic content to show on this programme. <laughs> because if, if we're looking for examples of elites who are out of touch and completely away with the fairies, quasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss, they, they cannot be beaten. Um, Dalia, thank you so much for joining me tonight.
2: Thanks for having me, Michael.
1: And thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. We'll be back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.